Our text for this Lord's Day, continuing in the study of Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 1, beginning with verse 12. Hear now God's holy word. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would fill us all with your Holy Spirit so that we can indeed, as John was, be in the Spirit on the Lord's Day as you reveal yourself to us through these, through these visions that you gave John, through these images and sights and sounds and smells that you revealed to your servant John, so reveal them to us today, we pray. Help us to understand everything we read. Deliver me from error so that I might not lead us into any wrong thinking. Help us to forget anything that's not helpful and only hold to what is true. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, the first word of the book of Revelation is, in, in Greek, in Greek, the first word is apocalypsis. And that should sound familiar to you. You should... Um, Here's something in that word. That's the word we get apocalypse from. The word apocalypse for us in modern usage is full of foreboding, dread, terror, fear. We use it to mean, when we talk about an apocalypse, we talk about the end of life as we know it. So novels and movies and television series are set in what they call an apocalyptic future where humanity is dealing with the results of a natural disaster or global war or aliens or monsters or the rise of the dead. You know, we talk about the zombie apocalypse. We use it that way. And so the word apocalypse gets employed in these kinds of, you know, post-civilization contexts where it's the end of life as we know it. Radical environmentalists also have, em have employed this same vision of the future. They predict a future in, in which the planet is unhabitable for humans. All the animal species have gone extinct. Uh, and, and they describe this, many describe this as an apocalyptic global environmental disaster. Now, many Christians imbibe both uh, science fiction and the in environmentalist rhetoric, and uh, we've probably uh, eat it back up because we gave it to them to begin with. We, we taught them how to talk this way. But, but then we go back and we read the prophetic books of the Bible as if 
the scriptures cast the same vision of the future as both the environmentalists and the dystopian science fiction writers. That, that what Jesus and Peter and Paul and John and Daniel, what they provide for us is a miserable outlook on the future, full of suffering until the earth is consumed in a big ball of fire. And so when we talk about apocalypse, we too are talking about the end of the world. We're talking about the end of life as we know it. But the definition of the biblical word uh, apocalypse, the definition of that word is not disaster. It's not catastrophe. Apocalypse doesn't mean the complete and utter destruction of the world. Your English Bible translates the word apocalypsis accurately when it translates that word revelation. That's the definition or, or that's a proper translation of the word. The apocalypse of Jesus is the revelation of Jesus. A revelation, an apocalypse, is an unveiling. It is a revealing. It is a disclosure. And in this book, the subject of this apocalyptic unveiling, this revealing, this disclosure, the subject of this unveiling is Jesus. This is the uncovering of Jesus. The book of Revelation is an expose on Jesus. And, and so the book of Revelation, the book named the apocalypse in the Greek scriptures, is not intended to be read by Christians as this enigmatic, frightful, hopeless uh, outlook on the future, but this book is an uncovering of truths that direct us to hope in and delight in and imitate our Lord Jesus Christ. So if, if all you get today, if you check out for now, at least I want you to go home with this, that, that apocalypse is not disaster. Apocalypse is not catastrophe. Apocalypse is revelation. Apocalypse is unveiling. It is, it is an uncovering. And it's fascinating that this, this is the title of the book because we have a number of references in the Bible to covering and, and uncovering, right? You, you, if I just talk about covering and what coverings are and what covering is in the Bible, your, your mind as students of the scriptures, your mind starts to uh, turn circles about all of, the, all of the language in the Bible of covering and uncovering. There are things hidden or covered in, in the scriptures because we aren't ready for them yet. They're covered as a protection for us. So the Ark of the Covenant was covered. You don't, you don't touch it. You don't look at it. You don't play with it because you're not, you're not ready. Like the inside of the tabernacle, uh, a, a, um, we, we cover our heads and we cover our bodies out of decency and propriety. And so when something is unveiled before us, a kind of intimacy and a nearness is being invited. And so the high priest was invited into the covering. He was invited behind the veil. Uh, the glories of God behind the veil were uncovered, were uh, revealed, were uh, uh, an apocalypse to the, high, to the high priest. Husbands and wives uncover themselves before each other, though they're still veiled by the firmament of their dwelling. Their, their house is a covering. That's why Noah wasn't in sin uh, for uh, not being covered inside his tent. His tent was a covering. It was his son's sin to have uncovered him and to have shamed him and, and mocked him. Uh, so all, all of this language of covering and uncovering is throughout the Bible. Last week, um, sorry, last month we read the Song of Songs and we saw the increasing intimacy of the lovers after their wedding 
where they're unveiled before each other and they delight in mutual revelation. And in that study, I showed you how Revelation, this book that we're studying now, how that begins with a similar love poem to the one we found in Song of Songs, a, a poem that rejoices feature by feature in the adorability of the beloved. So, so if this book, if the book of Revelation is a, a, a book written to the churches, this is a, an unveiling of the bridegroom Jesus to his bride, the church. Uh, just as we saw in the Song of Songs. This is an unveiling, a disrobing, if, if you want to carry the metaphor forward, this is, a, this is that kind of unveiling of Jesus to his bride, the church, inviting her into closer nearness and intimacy. He is revealed to her in his glory to the one who he comes to cover right? He comes to her to cover her, to spread the wing of his garment over her like Boaz did for Ruth. Um, he is our mighty Boaz who comes to cover us. Uh, the poem that we read just a moment ago, and I read um, that, that, uh, that blazon or that wasif, as we saw in Song of Psalms, I read that um, from Revelation uh, it, that shows him to be clothed in glory. But just before that, we have pointed reminders of his shameful exposure on the cross in, in verse 5. Uh, this is the one who loved us and washed us from our own sins in his blood. In verse 7, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. So there are these callbacks and these remembrances to how Jesus was shamefully exposed on the cross. And so this Jesus who has been exposed on the cross is going to go on in the book of Revelation to expose those who shamefully exposed him. He is going to uncover them and to show their shame. And so, and, and there's, this, um, there's this back and forth in their, in their ignorance, they expose him on the cross and that works out to the covering of the whole world. Uh, the word atonement just means to cover. And so out of ignorance, they crucify him, they uncover him, and they help bring about the covering of the world. And so Jesus provides, Jesus the revealed one, Jesus the unveiled one offers a covering. He offers to spread the wing of his garment over you. He offers to cover you, to atone for your sins, to cover your guilt. And if you refuse this covering, if you reject this atonement, you're left naked. There's not another covering. You run for fig leaves. They don't work. They don't help. You can't atone. You can't cover yourself. You can't atone for your own sins. Abraham can't cover your sins. Moses can't cover your sins. Uh, that's the message to uh, the first century Jews. You can only be truly covered by this Jesus who comes to reveal himself, to uncover himself, so that he can spread his wing over you and bring you into deeper intimacy and deeper nearness to him. And all of that is wrapped up in just the first two words of, of the book. Um, and, and we could even go further, but we have, to, uh, we, have to keep, we have to keep moving, but that's how the book works. We won't spend that much time on every line, 
But hopefully I'll be able to give you just enough to spark your own continued study and meditation on the book. And so I've, I've struggled with how to present uh, as we work through these chapters because of the, the images and the visions. It's so intertextual. As I said two weeks ago, it's so, it's so connected to every other part of the Bible that what I'm going to do and what I intend to do is work through it and just say, here's some stuff. Here's some good things. Here's some ideas and here's some pictures and images and some truths that we can mine out of here gem by gem, uh, treasure by treasure as we work through, uh, as we work through this book together. And I hope that that, that format works. What I hope it works for us. So we've been doing this introductory big picture work for the last two weeks, but now I want to go back to the beginning of chapter one and, and pick up all of the things that I missed and all of the things that we need to know to get an idea of how this book begins. So back to, back to the beginning of chapter one, and we'll, um, we'll stream through the whole first chapter today. That's my, that's my goal. So back, back to the beginning of chapter one, verse one. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. So you see the, uh, the, the chain of custody of this revelation. The father gave it to Jesus. Jesus gave it to his angel. The angel gave it to John. John gives it to the churches. This is how it pleases God to communicate. God's revelation of himself is not immediate. He doesn't just reveal himself to me alone in private. God's revelation of himself is mediated. It's communal. Yes, you have personal access to God. You don't, you don't go through a human mediator. You go through Jesus, though. It is still a mediated communication to God the Father when you pray. And when he communicates to us, he is pleased to do so ordinarily in mediated ways. He, he speaks to us in community through the scriptures, through the, the church, through the people he has given us to exhort us and to encourage us. Um, and so this revelation that is passed along is about things which must shortly take place. This book is not about the whole scope of human history primarily. It's not about the end of space-time and the world as we know it. This book is about things that are going to happen in the near future to be witnessed by the original audience of this book. And this is sustained in other places in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 24, as we saw last week or the week before, Jesus pronounced judgment on that generation. He says, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. So no matter what charts or timelines we draw to put these events together, the scriptures put an expiration date on them, um, that, that these must happen in that generation. Now, we also acknowledge and we believe that these events reach into the future. These events have effects that ripple throughout history. And many of these events, events get fulfilled in fuller ways in the future. And because we see that the way that the God works in the Old Testament has echoes in the Gospels, it has echoes in the book of Acts, it has echoes definitely in the book of Revelation, so then the way we see him act in Revelation are going to echo into our future and beyond. All of that is true, and we can gladly affirm that. But the point of this is that 
is that this book is not written in such a way that it was irrelevant to its initial audience. This book was not irrelevant for the first 2,000 years of church history, just so it was somehow preserved for us now that we're the special generation who finally gets to connect everything to the, to the real you know, thing that it was supposed to <laughs> signify. Um, and, 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 and without us, it would have just been gathering dust for centuries. That's not, that's not the proper reading at all. These things were communicated to a generation who could see, hear, and apply everything that was in it. And another truth here, the fact that uh, God says these are things which must shortly take place, another truth to, to connect with is that God can say what things are going to take place because he is the God of time and he is the God of history. He can tell what things are going to take place because he ordains them. Now, there's no such place as the future. There, the future hasn't happened yet, right? There, there's no space called the future. You can't get in your DeLorean or in your, your um, uh, phone box. It, you can't go to the future, right? The, the future is not a place where you can go to. The future doesn't exist. It hasn't happened yet. But because God is the king of everything, who sovereignly ordains everything that will come to pass, the future is certain and secure because he has planned it, because he has ordained it. So he can say what is about to come to pass because he has declared what is about to come to pass. Now, the future is veiled to us. The only one who can reveal the future to us is the God who is the Alpha and the Omega, the God who declares the end from the beginning, the first and the last. Uh, verse Four, just the beginning of verse 4 says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. This, this revelation is addressed to seven specific churches in seven specific cities in a specific historical context. These are seven cities that you can go to today. You can visit the ruins of Laodicea and Thyatira and Pergamos and Sardis. You can see the ancient cities, what's left of them. These were uh, significant cities in John's day. They were connected by a great circular road that, that connected all of them and, and the road ran through the center of the Asian territory. Each of these churches were influenced by the work of Paul in this region. Of course, Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus. He visited there and went back, and uh, they, um, they wanted him to stay there and not go back to Jerusalem. If you remember that very emotional scene in the book of Acts, Paul wrote them the letter of Ephesians. Paul had a great deal of influence in Ephesus. Uh, but Colossae is another town in that same area. Colossae is a place where uh, Paul had friends and where to whom he wrote a letter. Galatia is just northeast of the same region where these seven churches all. So uh, this is fertile territory for the gospel. You might ask, well, why didn't, why didn't he write these letters to Rome or, or Corinth and Macedonia? Why doesn't he write this to Jerusalem and to Judea and the churches down there? Well, it's because this has been fertile territory for the gospel. And there are two strategic reasons for addressing these churches with this message. The first strategic reason is that after the fall of Jerusalem, uh, Asia Minor becomes the center of Christianity for the next 800 years. All of the ecumenical councils are held here in this same geographical area. Nicaea, Ephesus, Chalcedon, Constantinople, all, all those councils take place in this area. <coughs> Secondly, 
Asia, Asia Minor, was the center of the cult of Caesar worship at the same time. So you have this great flourishing of the church in this region, but you also have a cult of Caesar worship. The local church, uh, the, the local cultures in Asia Minor had a red hot uh, patriotic fervor for Caesar, this, this red hot imperialism where Caesar was heralded as God. There was a temple dedicated to Julius Caesar in the city of Ephesus. They herald Augustus as the son of God. They thought of Augustus as the divine human mediator. They saw Augustus as the savior of the world. Their creed was Caesar is Lord. So, so to these churches serving in this context, comes this revelation of Jesus as the true Son of God, the true Savior of the world. He continues in the middle of verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see how that, that, that rings a little bit differently knowing that there is a, this, this imperialistic cult worshiping Caesar in this region to whom these words are coming. It is to Jesus, uh, uh, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Jesus, not Caesar, is the one who is and who was and who is to come. Jesus, not Caesar, is eternal. Jesus was before there was anything else. And no matter how far into the future we go, no matter how far into the future we live, we will never outlast him. He will always be there. He is not bound to time, neither is he subject to it. In fact, Jesus is only subject to himself. Um, in, in this, in this e eternal perspective. Being the God who is to come means that he's not waiting for us ahead in the future, hoping for us to catch up so he can fulfill his plans, but he's the God who's constantly coming to us, pulling us into his future, the future he is creating and ordaining. That's what all of our hymns have been about this Advent season. That's what our readings and prayers and petitions have been about, is that, Lord, come, come, pull us into the future that you're creating. Come to us, come to us speedily and help us and change us. We get this Trinitarian uh, expression here. You have the Father, who is the I Am. He is the one who is and was and is to come. You have the Spirit, and you have Jesus Christ. But the Spirit is referred to here in a unique way. Did anybody catch that? The, we, we read about the seven spirits who are before His throne. What is, what is that about? Seven spirits. Are we adding numbers to the Trinity now? Do we have now more members uh, what, what, is, what is going on here? Several Bible scholars agree, and I, th I think they're right. Uh, they agree that we can read this as the sevenfold spirit of God. There, there aren't seven more persons in the Trinity that we haven't found out about till now, but the Spirit's work is always associated with sevens. And seven, biblically, is, is, we, we see it as the number of completion. It's the number of fullness. The number, it's, seven is the number of creation, the, the evidence of the Spirit's work. 
So uh, when the Spirit works, he always seems to work. He likes to work in sevens. When he creates the world, when he transforms the void into the cosmos organized as we know it, he does it in seven days, seven evenings, seven mornings. And he sets this inescapable rhythm to the cosmos. The, the prophet Zechariah talks about the seven lamps on the temple lampstand. He, he says these are the seven eyes of the Lord that scan the whole earth. Revelation chapter 5 echoes that. He says the lamb has seven eyes and seven spirits. Um, so throughout Revelation, we'll find him carrying out this work in, in sevens over and over and over. The, the work that we'll see in Revelation of the Spirit's decreation and new creation will all come in sevens. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, and you won't be surprised to find out that each one of those seven uh, trumpets, bowls, uh, uh, seals, they all match up to the days of creation. Uh, they, in various ways. We'll also read about seven lamps, seven stars, seven churches. So here in, in Revelation, the Spirit is, is referred to as the sevenfold Spirit of God, the seven Spirit. He is, he's the seven. And so we'll see his heptamorous work, his, his work of, of sevenfold activity all over the book of Revelation. And then, and then we see Jesus. We see Jesus who is the faithful witness. The Greek word for witness is martus. That's the word we get martyr from. Jesus has been the faithful martyr. He's been the faithful uh, sufferer all the way till death and, and, and his death witnesses to the faithfulness of God. He is the firstborn from the dead and because of his resurrection, he has supremacy. He has preeminence. He is first over everything, which makes him ruler over the kings of the earth. Again, he is not waiting to be ruler of the earth someday, not in some future sense. He's not, he's not looking for certain things to happen in a certain order so that he can take his throne. But right now, Jesus is ruler over the kings of the earth. He has asserted his absolute and total dominion over all, all rulers, kings, nations of the world. And in his exaltation, he has loved us, uh, John says here. He has, he has forgiven us, which means that, among other things, he has freed us from every entanglement to the former creation, our former selves. We're no longer identified with sin. We're no longer identified with death. Jesus is our environment. He is our identity, and he has made us, we also read, he has made us kings and priests. We have been raised up together with him, and we are rulers of creation alongside of him. The church is the new polis. The, new, the, the church is the new city. The church is the ecclesia. It is the new city council uh, of, of, over the world. And, and his dominion only increases more and more. And so what this means is he's not simply Lord of our hearts. He's not just the Lord of our quiet times. He's not just the Lord of our thoughts. He is head of the church. He reigns over the family. He is the head of state. His rule is over everything, everywhere. You cannot escape uh, his, his rule over all things. Um, verse 7, we read, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. 
Now, right here, we set up the theme for this, for this book, which again, is not the end of the world, but of the coming of Christ in judgment against Israel. He is coming to fold up the old world. He is coming to fold up the old heavens and earth and establish the church as his new kingdom. And this is what this reference to clouds is all about. Now, any student of the scriptures in the first century would know exactly what this is a reference to when he says he is coming with clouds. He is coming with clouds. Now, you and I have been affected by uh, 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 apocalyptic literature, and we've been affected by those bad movies they made in the 70s, and then again they made some bad movies in the 90s about the end of the world and as if they were pulling things from Revelation. Uh, there used to be a painting hanging in the foyer of a church I attended as a young man. There was a painting of Jesus in the sky and planes were crashing and buses were running off the road and buildings were on fire and Jesus was with the clouds. And I think maybe some of you have seen something like that. And that's the picture that, that lands in your head when you see the words, behold, he is coming with clouds. You're thinking of some uh, kind of, of rapture with the world going to hell, literally. The world goes to hell and, and all the saints leave it. Um, but that's, that's not the picture that the New Testament saints would have had in their heads. They didn't, they didn't have that painting. They didn't have the left behind books. They didn't have these things. What they did have were the Psalms and what they did have were the prophets. And so a very different uh, image comes to their head. Uh, when, when God comes near in judgment, he comes throughout the Bible. He comes in his cloud of glory, which is full of lightning and thunder, fire and smoke. You see it in Genesis 15 when God cuts his covenant with Abraham. You have it at Sinai, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. You have it at, in, in the wilderness as God leads his people. Uh, Psalm 18 praises God's work of deliverance and God's work of judgment uh, it's specifically David praising God for delivering him from Saul, for pulling down Saul's kingdom and lifting up David. And Psalm 18 is full of clouds. It's full of fire and smoke. Listen for it. Listen for, in, in Psalm 18. I want to read you a section. David singing. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. When Yahweh comes in judgment, when he pulls one kingdom down and establishes another kingdom, when he comes, he comes enveloped in a cloud. And David says this is exactly what he did when he pulled down Saul's kingdom and he lifted up mine, when he delivered me from the hand of Saul. Um, Isaiah picks up on the same theme. Isaiah 19, Yahweh rides on a swift cloud and he will come to Egypt and the idols will totter at his presence. Nahum, the prophet Nahum also has Yahweh coming with clouds of judgment. None of these passages, not in the Psalms, not in the prophets, nothing, none of them are about the end of planet earth uh, as we think about it. These are all instances where God is making his presence known in visitation and judgment. And so now that he says he's going to do this again in the first century, now in Revelation 1 to the original audience of this, now he says this is what's going to happen again. The coming of Jesus with clouds of judgment 
that they're expecting is the same one Jesus talked about again in Matthew 24. And also when Jesus was before the high priest, he says this, Jesus says to the high priest, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He says that to the high priest, you are going to see this. So revelation repeats the words of Jesus, those who pierced him, those who put Jesus to death, the generation that did this, that rejected him, are going to see this judgment. They will experience and understand. They will see that this is God's judgment on them. This is God's answer to their rejection of his son. This is God's answer to their execution of Jesus. Uh, Zechariah also uses this language. They will look on him whom they pierced. Well, how do they see? How do they, how do they see him? Well, they're going to see it when the uh, the temple is in rubble when the city of Jerusalem is, is torn apart and everything is, is torn down from the, from the old world of the old covenant. That's when they see it and they say, oh yeah, yeah, he told us this was going to happen and it did. Well, after this, after this introduction, Jesus begins, I'm sorry, John begins his narration of what he sees and hears. Verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. This is John, the beloved apostle, who is on the Isle of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. It's right off the coast of Asia Minor. He says, I'm there because of my testimony of Jesus Christ. So we can conclude, as, as many scholars have, conclude that he was exiled there. He was probably deported from Ephesus. Uh, tradition has it that he ministered in Ephesus. Um, he, for some reason, we don't know all the details, he's, he's deported from Ephesus and left there on the Isle of Patmos by the local magistrates because of, of his threat to their way of life and to their worship of Caesar. Now, history tells us that the, the uh, Isle of Patmos had at least a small population of people there. Maybe other exiles for various crimes and offenses, but there was a fortress there, there were walls and a tower, so, so maybe there, were, there was even a prison there. And it's possible that John was not all alone when he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, but that he was with other believers engaged in worship. So when he says, I was in the spirit, that doesn't mean he, he just felt good. That doesn't mean he had a positive state of mind. It meant that he is among those gathered by the Holy Spirit on the Lord's day to direct his worship to Jesus. And this is when he sees this vision that I read just at the beginning. But since it's been a few minutes, I want to read it again and pay, pay close attention and we'll quickly unpack this vision, uh, and then we'll conclude. Verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like the flame of fire, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, 
But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. So in this vision, he sees Jesus standing in the midst of lampstands. And Jesus is there clothed like a priest. Now, now when you see lampstands, you know that you're inside a temple. The lampstand in God's temple, um, uh, in, in Israel's temple, uh, had seven lights. But here we see seven lampstands, each with seven lights. So this is seven times seven. Uh, again, you see the seven, you say, oh, the Spirit's at work. So he's doing something. The old lampstand was the light of God shining on Israel. Um, but in heaven's sanctuary, now there's enough light for, the, for all the nations. And we find out that these lampstands, the actual lights are the churches. The churches are the lights to the nations. There we have that love poem that, that praises him feature by feature. The garments of Jesus are priestly vestments with a gold band holding them together, just like the priestly breastplate. His head and his hair are white. Uh, the word white is used more in Revelation than any other book of the Bible. Jesus promises a white stone to the overcomer, white clothing for those who are in Sardis and Laodicea. The elders in the heavenly temple wear white. Jesus gets uh, to ride a white horse. I'm wearing a white robe uh, on the Lord's Day just because I'm trying to get a head start. I'm trying to get ahead of it and, and get, get onto this program. A, a white, uh, the, the martyrs wear white robes. A white garment... Or, or a white object is, is one that's obviously clean. Um, if, if a white shirt has a stain on it, if you're going to see it right away. If a, white, if a white garment is dirty, you can see it rather clearly. So, so if it's white, it's, it's obviously clean. It's obviously pure. A white lamb is one without blemish. Nothing makes everything look just clean and nice and bright like a fresh blanket of snow. This word white is used over and over in the Bible. And I want to, um, I don't think I have to say this. I don't think I need to, but just so you know, I don't think I have to say it. Um, uh, the, the, all these references to whiteness in Revelation have nothing whatsoever to do with human skin color. We, we, we get that, right? It has nothing to do with human skin color. The only white people in the Bible are lepers. That's the only white people in the Bible. The skin color we call white is really kind of pink, right? It's kind of peach. It's not, it's not even white. We're, we're, we're not, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not white. I'm pink. I'm peach. Uh, sometimes I'm red if, I've been, if you leave me in the sun too long. Um, but you know, Jesus wasn't a Caucasian. The apostles weren't Caucasians. Nobody else in Israel were Caucasian um, that, that we know of. But white objects, pure white objects and pure white animals and snow are all associated with purity and glory. So that where there's this clear, bright whiteness in heaven, what we have is an absence of filth. We have an absence of sin and corruption, just clear, clean, unstained holiness. And that's what, that's what all these references to white that we're going to come across are, are pointing to. Uh, his eyes are like fire. His eyes burn with love for his bride. Uh, they not, his eyes not only receive light like ours do, our eyes receive light. Our eyes are passive, uh, but, but his eyes give light like the, like the flames of the lampstands. His eyes run to and fro throughout the earth, Second Chronicles 16 says. His eyes are in every place watching both evil and good, Proverbs 15. We find that his feet are like fine brass. 
Back in Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a metal statue that represented the four kingdoms to come. But that image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of was toppled by a rock. Here is the new metal man in Revelation 1. Here is the new iron man. And he's the new king. And he doesn't get knocked over. He is the perfection and the glorification of humanity. Adam was made out of the dust of the ground and Yahweh turned him and breathed into him, uh, turned him into, uh, by, the, by the breath of life, uh, he, he made him animated dirt. That's what we are. We're, we're, we're animated dirt, um, but through the process of maturity and the redemption of humanity, in Revelation, we'll see mankind is transformed into something precious. And so as we see the description of the church and the bride, we have all of these costly metals, these rare gemstones, which also come from the dirt, but they're glorified dirt. The, the first Adam is made out of dust, but Jesus, the second Adam, is made of bronze. Humanity is glorified in Jesus. Later, when we see the bride again, she's constructed out of gemstones and jewels and precious metals. She becomes like her bridegroom as she is matured and elevated. His voice, we read about his voice. His voice is like the sound of many waters. Out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. A few verses ago, we heard the voice of Jesus was like a trumpet. The word of God thunders to us. The voice of Jesus blasts like a brass instrument. It's razor sharp like a sword. And so if we're becoming like him, if we're conformed to him, so, so then if God roars to us, we turn and we roar to the world. He roars to us, so we imitate his roaring in worship and we roar back to him, our prayers ought to sound like the, the war chant of a mighty army when we pray together. Our psalms and hymns must strike fear in the hearts of the devils. When we recite the creed and we say what we believe, we don't mumble, we don't whisper, we shake the walls. God speaks like this. God thunders to us because that's what he wants to hear. God's voice shakes the world. Psalm 29 says this, the God of glory thunders. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars. He splinters the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness and strips the forest bare. And everyone in his temple says glory. So he thunders and the temple uh, uh, worshipers respond and say glory. They echo his response. You know how you want to make a small child repeat your sounds. You, you say it over and over and over. You want them to say what you're saying. You want to say, mama, 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 and they say, mama, mama, and you, you say, dada, dada. That's what God is doing for us. When he thunders, he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to thunder. I want you to speak up. I want you to shake the earth with your witness and with your voice. He shakes the earth with his voice so that we learn how to respond. In his hand are seven stars. Stars and people always go together. Abraham is promised offspring like the stars of the heaven. Joseph dreams about his family and sun, moon, and stars as the images of his family. Daniel 12, Philippians 2 says, says both say the righteous shine like stars. Stars were set up at creation to rule, to govern the day and night. And so here Jesus has stars in his hand that he calls the angels of the seven churches. Now the lampstands are the churches, but what are the, what are the stars? The angels of the churches. The Greek word angelos means messenger. Often it's used for heavenly messengers, heavenly angels. But in this context, the angels of the churches must be human messengers because John is told to write to them. 
He's got he's to write these letters to the angels of the churches. And I don't know how he would write to heavenly angels. I don't know what their address is. And I don't know how John would find their address. How would he know? So these angels are the pastors of the seven churches to whom this revelation is going to be communicated. Jesus holds these seven pastors, these seven stars in his right hand as he walks through the lamps in the next two chapters, inspecting the churches for faithfulness. And it's, it's that work that he's going to take up over the next two chapters. One last detail here is that when we see, uh, when John sees Jesus revealed this way, John falls down like a dead man. This is the same John who loved Jesus and served with Jesus for three years. This is the same John who rested with Jesus at the Last Supper, who saw Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is the John that was with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, who was the only apostle present at the crucifixion. Only John was there. And now he sees Jesus in all of his glory, and he doesn't take it for granted. He falls down on his face as if he were dead. You see, everybody kneels before Jesus. Nobody takes him for granted. No one is prepared to see him in all of his majesty. Not even his closest friend is prepared to see him this way. So it's striking to see that the last image we get of Jesus in the canon of Scripture, the last image of Jesus is not of him bloodied on a cross, though that's a critical image. It's not of Jesus in the garden outside the tomb after his resurrection. It's not even Jesus rising to the right hand of the Father. Um, any one of those images might seal in our mind the finality of that's where he is. That's, that's why I object uh, so much to, to crucifixes with a, with a bloody Jesus on his. I don't, I don't want to frame him as if that's where he is now. That's not where he is today. Because that's not the last image the Bible gives us of Jesus. The Bible concludes uh, with this book of, of Revelation unveiling, revealing this image of a powerful, glorious reigning, majestic Jesus, who is preeminent over everything. The last time we see Jesus in the Bible, we're left with this earth-shattering reality that Jesus is glorified and presently ruling over history from heaven. In the Song of Songs, the friends of the Shulamite, they ask her, they say, what kind of beloved is this beloved? What, what, what kind of beloved is he? Is he really worth all this trouble? So she gives the feature-by-feature -feature account of his attractive attributes. And the revelation of Jesus is the answer to the same question. What kind of savior is this? Who is this king of glory? Who are you talking about? Is he really worth all of this? Well, take a look. Here he is, crowned in white, with the burning brightness of the sun, with fire and stars, and bronze and with a sword. He is the king and captain of all the cosmos. He is over everything that is created. He is the first and the last. He is the one who holds everything together. And if you don't fall on your face as if you were dead when you see this vision, you're not paying attention. You are asleep. You are not alive, in fact. Uh, he, he shows us this so that we are humbled and so that we worship him. And the trajectory of this book, here's the great part, the trajectory of the book is that he prepares his bride to be just like him in glory and majesty. Everything you see about Jesus also becomes true of the church. He crowns her. He honors her. He sets her up as an authority in his kingdom to rule and to judge the earth. Her eyes become like flames of fire. She speaks with the voice of many waters. Her tongue is a sword. Her feet are like bronze. He becomes one flesh with her 
so that she has a part in his exaltation and rule. Because she is the bride of the king, she shares in his splendor. This bride, the church, is made up of men and women just like you and me who have fallen dead on our faces before this Jesus and who have been lifted up by this same Jesus. Now he pulls back the veil. He reveals himself more and more so we can be amazed by him and delighted by him, but also so that we can be like him. We worship him so that we can be like him. That's the goal of this book. Not to make us more fearful, not to give us nightmares, not to give us things to worry about, but to make us like Jesus. He shows us himself. He reveals himself. This is the apocalypse, the revealing of Jesus, the uncovering of Jesus and his glory so we can imitate him. And that's the study we'll take uh, the next several weeks to go through. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this revelation of your son, Jesus. May we read it like this and receive it like this and increase in worship and imitation of our Savior more and more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.